Subing Tian gets away well. Fred Curley got a good start as well for the United States. Curley in the lead. Lamont Jacobs pushing. DeGrasse trying to close. It's Lamont Jacobs! A shocking upset to win the 100 meters! 979! He smashes the European record again! Hey now. That's right, I said hey now. Hey now. Welcome to the Sportscasters Podcast. My name is Steve Bennett coming to you from Buffalo, New York. Debuted on January 11th, 2011. And here we are, Wednesday, August 4th, 2021. I, it just occurred to me the other night that the 10th year of the sportscasters is closer to over uh, than it is beginning. Before we know it, we'll be celebrating 11 years of the sportscasters. And, you know, I'll admit that there was a lot I wanted to do to celebrate 10 years that I haven't. And instead, I've just been doing the show that I've always done. And maybe that's better. You know, maybe we didn't need to celebrate that much. You know, we did that. Don was on. We had fun with Jeff Passan and Greg Wyshynski on that very first episode of the season. And obviously we got to celebrate the the uh, the article in Sports Illustrated. Maybe that was enough. And all the guests we've had on. I mean, I've pur- purposely tried to bring back people. Uh, make sure people that really mattered in the first 10 years. Uh, have been on and and the one thing I really do want to do before the year ends is get Lee Jenkins on uh, for sure today though we have two guests one debut and one guy who has really been uh, part of the run Uh, let's start with him Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders going to be our second guest today Uh, Aaron has been coming on uh, since season one And uh, we've been talking to him about Football Outsiders and the DVOA uh, since 2011. And every year around this time, I email him and I say, hey, I'm just catching up. Looking forward to talking about the book this year. And he sends me one, the Almanac, the Football Outsiders Almanac. He sends me one. And then he comes on and we talk about it. And it's awesome every year. And Aaron's a super nice dude. And I can't wait for you to hear the interview we did the other day celebrate the uh the football almanac the football outsiders almanac uh and normally that would start the show but we have a monster debut today and i mean a monster debut if you're a fan of sports writing and sports media like i am today's the day that lee montville debuts on the podcast and uh lee montville uh worked at the Boston Globe, wrote about sports there when Peter Gammons was there and McDonough was there, was like the all-star team, the all-star sports writing team. And then he was at SI during kind of the, you know, 
the uh, heyday of SI, of course. And uh, he's written some New York Times bestselling books, including The Big Bam. And he has a new book out today called Tall Men, Short Shorts, the 1969 NBA Finals. Wilt, Russ, Lakers, Celtics, and a very young sports reporter. And the book serves as part recap of that series and kind of a mini memoir as well. And look at uh, Lee Monville is a monster in sports writing. And I was lucky enough to have Frank DeFord on this show before he passed away. And Lee, Va- Lee Monville feels like he's at that level. Uh, so he's going to be on the podcast today. A huge debut. And Aaron Schatz as well. Uh, when this goes up, which is going to be in the next hour or so, it won't be long till the next Sportscasters goes up. I already have an interview with Stuart Mandel recorded that I did yesterday. Uh, and Stuart always comes on to this time of year to preview the college football season. You know, what I'm kind of trying to do in August usually is preview football. And that's college and pro. And Stuart usually comes on and we will go over the college football season. And we did about 25 minutes yesterday and we spent 24 of it on realignment. Uh, So we didn't get to preview the college football season. So we're going to have to get someone else on for that. And Stuart recommended Nicole Auerbach, and I've reached out to her. And if that works out, she'll be on uh, to talk college football season. And if it doesn't work out, I'll ask someone else, (laughs) you know. Uh, And Aaron Schatz is kind of the first bullet of the uh, NFL preview. Uh, Nick Underhill is going to be the Saints guest to preview the Saints this year. Uh, Also this year on the show, uh, we're going to preview fantasy with Michael Fabiano, hopefully. We usually always do that. Uh, And we'll do a a NFL reporter as well. Um, And I'm out on a bunch of emails on that. So I'm working really hard on the show, both shows right now. Ton of stuff on the Sportscasters and 24-inch podcast. And I'll talk more about that before one last thing. Uh, But real quickly, I want to talk about Jack Eichel for a second. Stop me if you've heard that before. But I want to try to have my most even-keeled take about this. I was emailing with uh, Ian Ross, a friend of the program, and he said, oh, I, I mentioned the idea of trading Eichel last year and you bit my head off and and I thought about that and I said yeah because it was dumb last year and it's dumb this year when you trade Jack Eichel you lose the trade so it's dumb but let's let's back up a little bit so we sold our souls as Sabres fans to cheer for the chance to get Connor McDavid or Jack Eichel Going into that season, we knew if we finished last, we'd be guaranteed either one. And we knew as Sabres fans, if we finished last, like we did the year before, it would likely be Eichel. Because we don't win things 
like NF, NHL draft lotteries. Now, we've won two since, of course, with Darlene and Owen Power. But you just knew if you were a Sabres fan that we weren't getting McDavid. We just weren't. And I argued on this show with Mike Harrington and Greg Wyshynski about how obvious that was to Sabres fans. First of all, statistically, it wasn't in our favor, right? It's only about a 20% chance to win the lottery, or at the time anyway. So that means it's like an 80% chance you're not going to win. So that's why it was so important to us to finish last, because when we lost the lottery, we knew we'd still get Jack Eichel. And going into that draft, the gap between Eichel and McDavid was not as big as you'd think. We made up a word for it called McEichel. Both guys played hockey games here. The Erie Otters. And then also there was like an all-star game where that BU that um, Jack Eichel played in. Representing USA, I guess. And we cheered against our team. And we finished last. And we lost the draft lottery. And we drafted Jack Eichel. Right? Tim Murray said... The Buffalo Sabres select Jack Eichel. And he came in with a lot of pressure and a lot of expectation, and he handled it really well. He was good as a rookie. He was better the next year. He kept getting better. He was an MVP candidate two seasons ago, the season before the COVID. And it felt like it felt like during that season that Eichel was going to be everything we thought he was going to be. But something else didn't happen is that the team didn't get any better. We kept firing coaches, firing GMs, missing on draft picks, giving away Ryan O'Reilly. Just somehow the team still sucked. And Jack Eichel got pissed. And then he got injured. And then he was pissed and injured. And then they had an exit interview and it didn't go great. And then Jack was in front of the media five minutes later and that didn't go great. And the next thing you know, it's like they have to get divorced. It has to be a trade. And then they don't agree about neck surgery and Jack wants something done that's never been done to a hockey player, and the Sabres say, well, no, we don't want to do that. We're not going to use Jack Eichel as a guinea pig. He's a $10 million, $100 million hockey player. We're not going to do that, Jack. And the Sabres hold the cards there based on the collective bargaining agreement that the players signed. The collective bargaining agreement that allows Jack Eichel to make $100 million in Buffalo and to have a no-trade clause and all the great things in that contract also says that the Sabres get final decision when it comes to surgeries like this. So, it looks like the Sabres are going to trade Jack Eichel. Okay. Well, that's fucking stupid. Because you're going to lose the trade. And a few different days, it feels like, okay, today's the day. What are we going to get? And there's all these rumors. He's going to New York. No, he's going to Vegas. No, Anaheim. Oh, the Sabres are going to try to get two top three picks. Oh, it's going to be before the draft. It doesn't happen. Oh, it's going to be before free agency. 
And it just doesn't happen. And then Kevin Adams says, you know what? We're only going to trade Jack Eichel if we can get the package that we want. And there's all these reports that the Sabres want a package that's too expensive. And I just keep thinking to myself, you got to bring this guy back. You don't have any leverage, right? He's an injured $100 million hockey player who wants an experimental surgery. If you're another team, why make the trade? Why give Buffalo what, 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 what Buffalo wants for Eichel? Why? Kevin Adams calls. Yeah, I want your uh, an NHL player, your best prospect, two first-round picks, another prospect. You tell him to fuck off. And he hasn't been traded. And I give Kevin Adams a lot of credit. He's standing his ground as he should because this is a 25-year-old center who's one of the five best hockey players in the world. And you don't just give him away. And they don't have any leverage. But it doesn't seem like Jack wants to come back, right? And then his agents put out this ridiculous statement at like 9.45 on a Friday. And if you're trying to get your client traded, that didn't help. That didn't give the Sabres any leverage. And look, I've kind of accepted the fact that Jack Eichel is just not going to be a Sabre anymore. Kind of accepted the fact that you might not want to bring him in the locker room. But I'm just, I, I hope, I hope that Kevin Adams continues to do what Kevin Adams has done so far. Stand your ground. You know, and maybe Jack Eichel's going to have to, you know, honor that contract. Be a man. Be a leader. I don't know. I know they got to trade him. I've accepted that. I just don't want him to give him away. And when I look out there and I think about leverage and I think about the other teams, I just and I think that a lot of teams offseason is sort of complete in a in, in a way. You know, I mean Vegas, for example, was supposedly a player, and then they come out and say, Well, we spent that money. And we're not interested in Jack Eichel anymore. We made our moves without him. So I don't know, is there a way that everyone can kind of sit down and take a deep breath? Maybe the Sabres can give Jack something he wants. Maybe he can come back. Maybe they can say to him, you know, you got to get out there and prove to the NHL that you're the player you are, that we know you are, and then we could trade you from a position of strength. We can get what we need for you, and you can get a fresh start. And then maybe just maybe they can win, and everyone gets happy, and maybe they don't have to get divorced. But that's probably not going to happen, is it? Probably what's going to happen is eventually Kevin Adams is going to fade. We're going to sell Jack Eichel for 55 cents on the dollar because we're the Buffalo Sabres. So, all right. Anyway, Lee Montville in a second. Aaron Schatz after the book club update. And one last thing about Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo and a soccer award I knew nothing about until a week ago. And some fascinating stats about that award. All right, let's take a break. We'll be right back with Lee Montville.
Our first guest today is from New Haven, Connecticut. He's a graduate of UConn. He's a sports writer for the Boston Globe and Sports Illustrated. The New York Times bestselling author of The Big Bam. And the author of a new book, Tall Men, Short Shorts. The 1969 NBA Finals. Wilt, Russ, the Lakers, Celtics, and a very young sports reporter. And it's an honor to have him for the first time on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to Lee Montville. Hey, Mr. Montville, how you doing today? Welcome. I'm glad to be here. You you ran the UConn fight song? They spell out the word Connecticut in it? I did it just for you. The UConn fight well, song. Yeah. I think it's it's the only song in America that spells out the word Connecticut, I think. <laughs> now, you were born in New Haven, right? I was. Do you have I a was. favorite New Haven pizza joint? I, I kind of like modern beats. Okay. Uh, modern. Yeah. Y- y- you don't have to stand in line as long. Those other places have become really touristy. Right, right. Yeah, my brother once played on the Yale hockey team, and uh, so I was there for four years, and I uh, had it all. <laughs> and lots of okay, it. Okay, very yeah, good. Yeah, lots of it. Uh, I have an interesting uh, Lee Montville preparing for this interview story. So I'm a huge fan of Howard Stern, but in the Howard Stern community, I'm considered a lapsed fan because I don't listen. I haven't really listened to the show since about 2011 or so, but I listen uh-huh. I listen every single day um, to 1984 to 2011. That's thousands of shows, and I listen to clips and full shows and compilations and all this every day. And the other day, and I'm pretty sure I had heard it before. I'm almost positive I had. But the other day, coincidentally, just a few days before I was going to talk to you, I was listening to uh, an episode of the show, and Howard and Artie and Robin and eventually Gary start talking about Lee Monville. And how Gary is reading his Babe Ruth book, and Gary pointed something out in the book, and they're talking about it, and next thing you know, boom, Lee Monfield's on the Stern Show. And I couldn't believe yeah. it was so cool. Tell, can you tell me about that? that yeah, that it, Howard Stern doesn't do any really sports writer things, no. I don't think. No. You know? um, Very and, little. And, and, and they got talking about that, and... Uh, and all of a sudden, they called me up, and and I was on. I, I was kind of nervous, you know, because I, 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 unlike you, I I don't listen to Howard Stern all the time. And the few times I've listened, I, I've said, "Oh, I wouldn't want to go into that closet that you go into." You know? <laughs> yeah, it could be a tough room. And, it could be a really tough yeah, room. But yeah, it, but but it was it was good. It was it was fun. And 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 the guy that that did the booking, Baba Booey, or yeah, what's yep, his name? that's Gary. He was the one who was uh, reading the book. Baba Booey was yeah, reading the book. Yeah, well, Gary, Gary and I, I corresponded a, a little bit because he he was getting a book together himself, and uh, and and he did come out with the book. I yep. think. Yeah, and, I can uh, see it from here on my shelf. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so he was a good guy. He was nice. It was good. I I should call him up again. Say I'm ready to I'm ready to come back. <laughs> you know, Joe Buck has been in studio a couple times. And done pretty well. I think Matthew Barry was in once or twice because a lot of the guys in Howard's office were in a fantasy league with him. Uh-huh. Uh, I've heard you and maybe, if I think about it for a second, a few other sports media people. And that's, oh, Mad Dog, Chris Russo has been on. Okay. 
but yeah, that yeah. I think that was more as a, like a deal with Sirius. Same could be said yeah. for Scott Farrell, if you ever heard his crazy yeah. show. But yeah, yeah, very few, yeah. very very few actual sports writers have been on the Howard yeah. Stern show. So it's so cool to hear you on there, and I think it helped that Gary gave you, I think, a great build up to Howard. You know, and I, I uh-huh. and I think pitched you. Just to, if you got to that point, it's because Gary really pushed for it, and I think. Also, with Artie being in the room, was a huge Yankees fan, and the topic being big roof, and also uh, Robin being from Maryland and near the uh, where Babe yeah. Ruth grew up. I think all that played the perfect storm to get you on there. But it's so cool, yeah. yeah. I, I had I had a feeling we we were going nowhere, and and Howard was going to blow me up, but then Artie started talking, and and it, I think it little light bulb over Howard's head, and we I agree. For a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and that's always. And you know what? That wasn't a you thing. That's just a sports thing. You know, already. Yeah, anytime yeah. the topic turned to sports, already always had to carry it. You know, no okay. matter what. So that wasn't. Yeah. That's how it was during the already era. You know, so yeah, um, right. right during that, from what was uh, two thousand and one to two thousand nine, those eight years that yeah. he was on the show. But yeah, so cool. I always. Um, I'm interested to hear a story like that. The other thing I wanted to talk to before we get to the book, Tall Men, Short Shorts, the 1969 NBA Finals, Will Russ, Lakers, Celtics, and a very young uh, sports reporter. I wanted to talk to you kind of about, about, about teams because you have been on a couple of the all-time great teams when it comes to sports rating. I mean, your team at the Boston Globe loaded with Hall of Famers. Your team at SI loaded with Hall of Famers. Um, I don't know. I wonder, like, when you're in a situation like that, like maybe a, a newsroom, a sports room at the Boston Globe, is to get competitive? Is there is there a competition to it? Is what is it like to be? Do you, do you notice it? Are you like, wow, I'm on a paper with some absolute? I I, I think there's a bunch of egos going around yeah. and bumping into each other. Okay, um, I bet. But 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 at the Globe, you, you know, you all kind of had had different streets you were walking, you know, I mean, like Bob Ryan would be doing basketball and Peter Gammons would be doing baseball and, and, uh, Will McDonough would be doing football. And, and, and so everybody was kind of off in a different direction. And, and I was kind of, I was a columnist and, and kind of left over and I, I would kind of dart around and pick my little spots and, uh, and it was great. It was, it was great. It was a nice atmosphere. There, there was a lot of energy there. Um, Sports Illustrated, it, it, you just worked out of your house at home, you know, and, and there wasn't much going on um, group-wise because you, you didn't, you'd go to New York once a year for the Christmas party, and, uh, and that was about it. Um, but they, they did have Sports Illustrated one year. They took everybody to a... Orlando, Florida, for a uh, I don't know, like like a symposium or something, or some kind of uh, feel good kind of thing, and you, you you could feel you could feel the egos in the room down there, just everybody gathered together in that situation, um, trying to top each other with with the bigger joke or something like that. <laughs> um, and and it, it wasn't so much that way at the Globe. That's pretty cool. It's it's got to be an amazing experience to think back. I want to tell you about the first time. I'm pretty sure I know the first time I ever read a Lee Montville column, and it's because uh, back in the I guess it was maybe 1990, maybe early into 1991, 
uh, Eric Lindros was drafted by Sault Ste. Marie in the OHL. And he didn't want to go there, uh, which was the first of two times that he wouldn't want to go somewhere. And he ended up playing for a little bit before he went to Oshawa. He ended up playing for a team in the Ontario Provincial Junior Hockey League, Minor Junior A. And they played a game. I'm from Buffalo. They played a game in West Seneca, New York, against the uh, which is now the Junior Sabres uh, through the evolution of the team. So it's easy to call them the Junior Sabres. And um, we, my dad and I lived real close to the rink, and we heard that this phenom from Canada was going to be playing at the rink. And this rink, I mean, the fire marshal probably had a heart attack. Uh, the place was just packed to the gills, and Lindros was – you know, a man amongst boys and dominated and me and my dad were awed and it was such a great experience for us as huge hockey fans. And a couple weeks later, maybe a couple months later, you know, I remember it, but I don't remember the exact time. My dad said there's an article in Sports Illustrated about the hockey player that we went and watched in West Seneca. And I said, cool. And I read the Sports Illustrated article that you wrote about Eric Lindros. And when I was preparing for this, I said, I wonder if I can find that online. And I actually did find it online and read it over. But that is, I, I don't know if you, if if often this is. I guess maybe maybe people are thinking we knew Steve was a nerd, but wow. But yeah, that I remember my first Lee Montville column, and that was it. Uh, I guess maybe in 1991 in Sports Illustrated. Yeah, I I I don't remember that much about the story except Eric Lindros was the exact same age as my daughter. And and I remember coming back from that and saying to my daughter, I found another guy I think you should marry, you know? Because I, I think if I, I said the same thing to her about Tiger Woods. Uh, and But I, I told her not to get married to Lance Lance Armstrong. I, I came across him. <laughs> He's and a, and, and he, looked, he looked a little sketchy to me. But uh, So I gave her the choice of Tiger Woods or Eric Lindros, and she didn't go for either. <laughs> Neither one would have been bad. It, it, it kind of got me thinking about when I was when I was looking for that Eric Lindros article. I was looking at all the different things you did at SI, and you know, there's stuff about Bill Russell. There's stuff about Muhammad Ali, Eric Lindros, Kevin Garnett. You know, excerpts from your books. You really got to do a lot of different things there. You know, yeah, it must have been fun. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, no, and I, I would kind of. Um promote a story a year, maybe maybe two a year, but mostly one a year, where they would have to send me to some exotic place <laughs> to do a story, you know? And 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 I went to Cairo, Egypt to uh to see the African basketball championships. I saw to qualify for the Olympics. I went to uh um Siberia to the world the world wrestling championships, freestyle wrestling. Um I went to South Africa uh I I I sent myself around the world, kind of, and, and they were they they were they were up for it. It was good. It was, I mean, they're never going to do that again. I don't think they'll send anybody to to Milwaukee anymore. But yeah. uh, but but they would send you everybody. I, the one place, I, the one thing I never never could get them to do was to go to the the Paris to Dakar road rally. I I always thought that'd be great because it went across the Sahara Desert. <laughs> Um, but they've moved that now. It's in South. Now it's in South America, um, where, where they go through a bunch of countries in the Amazon, which would also be exciting. Well, I can I can confirm your status because uh, 
when uh, John Wertheim wrote an episode about me and this podcast back in in uh, May, we did the interviews by phone in January. So <laughs> he, he said he was looking for a story that he wouldn't have to travel for. So I know the travel budget. Okay. Travel yeah, budget's yeah. tight. Uh, but uh, no, and, and the, the, I was thinking about you talking about travel. And it's a good segue to the book because one of the things that fascinated me in the book was just the logistics, you know, of a seven-game NBA final in 1969 and the way that this went from one side of the country to the other side of the country and back and forth and back and forth. Um, And just the idea that, you know, these guys, it's not like now the travel for the NBA players, you know, or... You know, this was this was a different era, wasn't it? And and I I imagine you talk about a little bit of the book. It, it wasn't that luxury luxurious for you to travel back in in those days either, right? No, yeah, no. And you know, the the whole idea of the book is I'm I'm this 25 year old guy covering this thing. I'd never been to California. I'd never seen a palm tree. I'd never seen the Pacific Ocean. I'd never been on a plane flight long enough to have a, a movie. Um, and and all of a sudden, I'm going back and forth across the country. And, and it, it was kind of exciting. And, and these guys, like you say, I mean, this would be commercial. And they didn't even have, have them sitting in first class. I mean, most of the time, they they, they were sitting in coach. And they were, these were big men kind of scrunched all up. And uh, you'd have to do that for six hours, you know, going across the country. Yeah, and it's just such a it's such a loaded the reason the reason the book, you know, is about seven games. I like the style and, and I gotta ask you how you decided to do this, where each game or each chapter kinda starts off with an actual newspaper uh report from the time and you kinda talk about how you were a new generation of writer and that the generation before you that was kind of phasing out was really mechanical and kind of boring and you were kind of brash and looking to bring color and and uh excitement to your columns and um yeah i was thinking about about that and i like that style in the book a lot but that's that's kind of like the 25 year old guys look at things you know when you you come upon a situation and you're the 25-year-old guy, and there's all these 50-something-year-old guys, and you say to yourself, um, these guys are all dead wood. we got to get the dead wood out of here because I am the future, you know? Yeah. And uh, and so you, you, that was the whole thing uh, of that time, to kind of make it like read like a novel or, or, or a nonfiction novel. Uh, you, you would try to with, like, little details and... and things like that, what color shirt the guy was wearing or something. And so it was more of a writing kind of game as opposed to what had been before that was the inverted pyramid, the who, what, why, when, where, and and kind of almost a rote kind of thing. And there was a premium on writing, and that kind of lasted for a while, but I I think that's kind of pretty much gone now, the premium on writing. I think... uh, it's become a more of a who, what, why, when, where, because it's, it's instantaneous. Fast, yeah, be it, fast, right? It, mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's, they're, they're going to get it so you, you can have a thought and, and you just put a machine up to your head and your thought will go right into the Internet, you know? it's sure. uh, it, it, You know, the, the descriptions aren't a big thing. 
and and they were a big thing because in this series, television was not a big thing. You know, it, it, the only two of the seven games were on television in Boston. Three of the seven in 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 Los Angeles, um, because they they had the home team blackout rule at the time to to preserve the the live gate. They they it was a bad marketing strategy, I think. You know that you you thought you had to black out the game because you weren't creating interest or or there was a lot of interest but people could only get it on the radio or from the 25 year old nitwit that was going back and forth (laughs) typing out the stories the uh i I wrote down a quote that you you in the book about that you said that um oh geez i just lost it my notes here uh, well, anyway, yeah, it was just about how you said about how you wanted it to be more like a novel and that the other guy's columns read like uh, the minutes of a public meeting. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. a yeah. – but, but, but it's all – it's all, you know, now, I mean, I I did it long enough to become the Deadwood, you know. <laughs> I, I was the Deadwood you had to get out of the way because because I I, I, I don't appreciate the whole – Twitterverse kind of thing of of the instant stories. You, you go to games now, and, and I, I I've been to games in in the press box, um, doing doing various stories, and nobody's talking. It's it's like you're in in a bank or, or an insurance office or something. Everybody's on their little machines, and nobody's nobody's joking or laughing because whatever. Whatever funny comment you have, you're pumping it out on the machine. You know, you don't want to share it because the guy next to you, he'll start pumping it out. So it's it's an odd situation to me. I think that the joy of the job is gone, and, and you, you're just kind of shoveling stuff into the, into the fire uh, constantly. Is there... Can you think of anyone today that you like to read? Do you have any favorites, any, any, any modern favorites at all? Is there anyone still doing the God's work out there, in your opinion? Well, you, you know, I, yeah, I mean, I I don't read the papers around the country as much, but, but uh, I mean, the, the, there are guys at the Boston Globe that are still good. Uh, Shaughnessy is an old-time guy, still right. still kind of doing the old-time things, but but there's like a young guy, Alex Spear, who's a, who, who who's an analytics kind of genius, but but he also gets some quotes and, and puts some some color into his stories. Uh, the, the, there's a new guy, uh, Juan McWilliams, I think his name is. He, he's very good. And the guy that covers the Celtics, Adam Himmelsbach, is, is good. Uh, I mean, they're, they're good, but but there's not a premium on style. The premium is on uh, on just information, you know what I mean? You were talking about how the devices in the in the press boxes now not as glamorous to hang around in the press box back then with the uh, giant typewriters you guys lugged around. Oh, that was another interesting thing in the book. You talk a little bit about yeah. the equipment you needed and having to search for the uh, for the local um, uh, Western Union to send the stories. Yeah, in. yeah. Now everybody everybody had typewriters, and you did the Western Union, and the, the evolution was. All of a sudden, there 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 was the uh, like like a copier, like a Xerox kind of thing, you know, where you you would type out your story, and there was a machine, and and you would put it on a, on on like a like like a roller kind of thing, and and 
it would spin around, and in four minutes, the the, the page would be transmitted to back to the thing, back to the the office. And there was even a company that that had those machines and would put them on the rollers and stuff. And then one day, a guy I think it was from the Washington Post came walking into the press box at Fenway Park, and he had a a big boxy thing that looked like a looked like an accordion. And he said, "This is called a computer." And he unrailed it, and there was a little television screen. And guys were giving him a lot of grief about it. And he says, "You can you you talk." He said, "But by the end of the year, you'll all have these." And sure enough, by the end of the year, we all had them. Uh, <laughs> and away we went into the computer age. That's awesome. That I was I was uh, at the start of the pandemic. I, I was lucky enough to have Scotty Bowman on the show, and uh, I was talking to him a little bit about when he was coaching St. Louis. And he went to three straight finals, and he lost 12 straight finals games. And uh, the last game that he lost was the um, the famous Bobby Orr goal, you know, with, with the, the, the statue goal in overtime where he's yeah, flipped yeah. up in the air. You know, that was the last of the 12 straight losses. And you made a point in the book about how the story is, is found in the loser's locker room. And um, I was thinking about Scotty when I read that and, and thinking about the Lakers. I mean – this was a run of uh, what five straight or six straight championships they lost to the Celtics, and I, I wrote down a quote. You described it as the losingest losing locker room ever imaginable. And yeah, that, that no. just stuck with me. Yeah, Did I you... mean, not only had they lost, you know, that was the sixth straight, but but they had lost when they were they were two to win two to one favorites to win the thing, and had been favorites from the beginning of the season with with this. Super team with Chamberlain, West, and Baylor. There'd never been a team like this before. It's it was kind of a forerunner of what happens now, where right, the LeBron teams. goes somewhere or Kevin <laughs> sure. Durant goes somewhere. I mean, Wilt kind of picked he wanted to go to Los Angeles and got to Los Angeles. Yeah, that's it's crazy too. And 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 they had the lead, and then there's a cool part of this book where you spend I don't know twenty pages or so talking about one final play, you know, that kind of swung the series in a way. Yeah, that was in the, that was in the fourth game yep. um, where the, the Celtics had lost the first two in Los Angeles, something that they'd never done because the first two had never been in Los Angeles before because sure. the Celtics always had a better record. Um, and now they came back to Boston and they won the third game and then the fourth game came and if they lost the fourth game, the whole thing is over, you know. It'd be two games in Los Angeles; they could never win those, and and it, it got down to a, a final play, and and the Celtics had what they called a secret play. John Havlicek and Larry Siegfried had been teammates at Ohio State, and they had run this play, and they'd put the play in uh, just a couple weeks ago, and and it it involved a triple pick. Uh, a, a, Three, three guys screening for Sam Jones to come around and Havlicek to give him a pass and Sam Jones to hit a jump shot. And it's the same play that, that, was, that was used in Hoosiers um, a number of years later when they made that movie, and they called it the picket fence, and uh, they, they put up the triple screen and, and had the guy. But in, in this telling, Sam, it was more dramatic because Sam Jones came around and got the ball all right and had time, but then he slipped and he he wound up just shooting the ball off the wrong foot and hoping that 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 it would 
somehow get up there, and he was hoping that Bill Russell would get the rebound, but Bill Russell had taken himself out because uh, he was afraid that the Lakers would foul him and he'd miss the foul shots. So Sam Jones throws this up, and it hits the rim and bounces high in the air, and it comes back down right through the hoop, and the Celtics win. And and that's that's as much as anything where where they they won the the, the series or or kept themselves alive in right. it. You know that's where it turned. It it came down to best two out of three, which which is a lot iffier than four out of seven. Sure, yeah, they say sometimes these series aren't over until you lose a home game, and that would have been a home game loss right there. Uh, sure. Right, three to one. Uh, the sportscaster here with sports writing Mount Rushmore uh, holder, spot holder, Lee Montville. His book is called Tall Men, Short Shorts, the 1969 NBA Finals, Will Russ, Lakers, Celtics, and a very young sports reporter. I, I love that quote. Like I said, I wrote it down. Um, the losingest uh, losing locker room imaginable. That was in '69. Did you go? Did you go in any other losingest losing locker rooms over the years? Can you think of a couple others that? Did you ever in one that said, "Oh man, this is like the Lakers in '69. This is a sad place." Well, 1986 and the Red Sox after oh, the ball goes through Buckner's legs, that kind of <laughs> yeah. that kind of sticks in your mind a little bit. Yeah, know? that's a good one. And, that is a good uh, one. You know, um, I at that game, I, I was down in the bowels of, of of Shea Stadium, writing this glorious column about how how the curse of the Bambino was dead and church bells were going to ring across New England and all of this stuff, and there was a a TV in the corner of the press room, black and white TV with a bad vertical hold. So every now and then it would kind of flip around, you know, sure. and people, people were watching the game and I'm typing about the wonderful things. And all of a sudden you hear the, Oh, Oh, and, and the, the, the Mets had things going. And so I, I took time out and went up to see what it was. And the ball went through Buckner's legs and, you know, all hell broke loose. Um, you know, it, it it was like I kept that story in in my computer for maybe I don't know two years afterwards, and then one day I just pushed delete and away it went. So oh. it's a, it's a story that I had just written written kind of for myself, I guess. Well, it it, it worked out in a way in '04. You know, when they eventually do break through. And then yeah, the, the, yeah. you put out the book with the the using some of the stuff from the Sons of Sam Horn site. And I remember that day. I remember I was in college. I remember sitting there and reading those stories like all day long on Sons of Sam Horn. You know, like I can vividly uh, remember that. And that. Oh know. yeah, no, I mean that was an unbelievable thing. Uh, people were going to the the graveyards to talk to, you know, Uncle Joe who really loved the Red Sox. Yeah. But, uh, but it had. To, had the big heart attack four years ago, you know, and yeah. and, it, 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 and it's never been the same since, you know. It, it, it's it's nice, but it's like they're another team trying to trying to win the thing. The whole crusade is gone, and, sure. and, and it will never be like that. And I'm sure it's the same for the Chicago Cubs people too. Yeah, I was going to say there's been a lot of uh, long droughts ended. I mean the White Sox, the Cubs, the Red Sox, the San Francisco Giants, even. Um, you know, and then, you know, if we want to go far back in 94, the Rangers in hockey broke their 40 yeah. years. The Blackhawks eventually broke their long yeah. streak with Patrick Kane. So it seems like in the last 
I don't know. I guess I sneaking the Rangers in there in 94. That extended the window a bit. But, I mean, even if we go to the 2000s, this century, there's been a lot of long droughts ended. So I guess there's yeah. some hope for the people of Buffalo where I live that maybe the Sabres or Bills could break through one day. We're over 100 seasons of professional sports without a championship here. Oh, wow. Mm. Wow. Yeah, between the two. But so you didn't you didn't count you didn't count those Buffalo Bills trips to the Super Bowl. They didn't count. Well, them. well, those are yeah, championships. Yeah. Those are second place. Yeah, trophies. no, that's true. You know, I mean, I guess I, we, we I, can go back to the AFL. They got a couple of championships there with Jack Kemp. Yeah, I I remember at Sports Illustrated one one Super Bowl the Bills were in. They my job was to go talk to the Buffalo fans. It was out in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know what Super Bowl it was, but I they. There was some hotel where all the Buffalo fans went, and they they just they just ate buffalo food and listened to the Buffalo radio station, and <laughs> and like they couldn't care less about going to anywhere, the beach or anything. It was just they wanted to be with all the Buffalo people, drinking the Buffalo beer, and 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 it, it was kind of neat. That's how we are. That is how we are. I'm trying to think. Yeah, yeah. I know the Wick on Rye. They would all be having Wick on Rye. Yeah, Beef on Wack. Yeah, Beef on Wack. Yeah, yeah. We had. I know the second one was in Minnesota, right? Uh Against Washington. That was in Minnesota, I think. And where was twenty five with Whitney Houston and Super Bowl twenty five was not in L.A. I don't think so. It must have been one of the Cowboys ones um, in L.A. So they had lost a few by then. By the time you got to them, at that point, so I'm sure they just wanted to be. I remember I was, you know. Super Bowl twenty five, the first one. I was eleven, so I remember. Okay. You know, I remember everything about the runs. I'm not a Bill. I'm not a Bills fan because of the Sabers. I, I was such a huge Sabers fan that the thought that my parents would not want to listen to a Sabers preseason game on my radio in my bedroom with me during a Bills game was just too much for me to handle. So I turned on the Bills. Um, okay. And became a. I've been a Saints fan since 1987, but. I do feel for the people, you know, I feel for the people of Buffalo. I just hope that we can all celebrate together over a Sabres championship instead of a Bills, but. That would be nice. We'll see. The book is called Tall Men and Short Shorts, the 1969 NBA Finals, Wilt, Russ, Lakers, Celtics, and a very young sports reporter. And we just touched the surface of what's in here because we didn't even get into the star power, really, of this event. I kind of kept it Lee Montville Central only have a certain amount of time but the book obviously spends a lot of time talking about those other guys like wilt and russ and jerry west and um all the other characters on the the teams um but as a sports writing nerd i spend my time on the sports writer uh listen this has been nothing short of an honor for me i really appreciate you taking the time i hope i didn't waste it and did you did it a little bit of justice for you is there anything you want to mention? Anything you want to promote? Anywhere you want to send people? Um, no, no. Just you can buy the book anywhere. Just, yep. just go anywhere and buy the book. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and the, and like you said, there was a lot of star power going on uh, at the time, and 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 the radio voices were big time radio voices. Johnny Most and and Chick Hearn, they they were huge characters in the whole thing. It, 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 it sometimes sounds like I'm talking about George Washington when when he was wearing the wooden teeth. It, it's so long ago, um, 
but the idea that Bill Russell was the coach and had no assistance. He was the coach, the star player, and uh, you look now, and, and the coaches have like they have the Mormon Tabernacle Choir <laughs> behind them, all these guys in their little zip-up jackets. So uh, it, it's a lot of fun, and it's a look at some. And it's not something that you see on, on TV with highlights and stuff all the time, because there weren't a lot of highlights. It's it, it's it's a word series. Well, I was lucky enough to have Frank DeFord in 2014, and I'm lucky enough to have you here today. So that's two-fourths of my sports writing, Mount Rushmore. Uh, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering out. She was a black haired beauty with big dark eyes and points all her own, sudden way up high. Way up firm and high. I passed the cornfields where the woods got heavy. Out in the back seat of my 60 shell. I want to thank Lee Monville. Holy shit. For being on the Sportscasters tonight. That was awesome. Awesome. All right. Book club update. Of course, Lee Monville was just on promoting tall men. Short shorts. So we'll say goodbye to that. The 1969 NBA Finals. Wilt Russ. Lakers, Celtics, and a very young sports reporter. I got a copy of that headed to Norwalk, Connecticut, and another copy of that headed to Thornton, Colorado. So if you're interested in a book that I'm giving away, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. All right, book club. We mentioned kind of last week that there were two books kind of in the present and then two that were kind of coming up. And that's one in the present gone. And now the other is across the river. Life, Death, and Football in an American City by Kent Babb. And that book is about high school football in New Orleans. It's called Across the River. Kind of looking forward to that one. Uh, Should be pretty good. Kind of reminds me of the S.L. Price book about Al Quippa, PA. Another book came in the mail today, and it's The Baseball 100 by Joe Poznanski. And it, it's to describe it as a book is difficult. I might call it a weapon. A weapon of self-defense, potentially. This thing is over 800 pages. Okay. It's an advanced copy, so it doesn't have anything about the author. Doesn't have an index. Okay. It doesn't have acknowledgments, I don't think. Let's see, no index, no about the author. So you got to figure another 50. It's going to be 900 pages or more. When this comes out on September 28th, 2021, it's available for pre-order now. And I can't wait to kind of get into it. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Of course, we've covered... Paterno and the Secret of Golf, 
two of the Joe Poznanski books. He was on episode six. That was his debut. So I can't wait to read this. I'm glad it came. And it's cool to have this, you know, advanced reader's edition. So I don't think I'm giving this one up. I'm probably keeping that. But uh, if someone's really, really, really interested when the book comes out in September, email me and I'll try to get the publisher to send you one. Uh, also, Tim Neverett has a book coming out about the Dodgers winning the World Series in the COVID season. And he calls games for the Dodgers. And I've talked to him a few times. And as far as I know, uh, the book Covert, COVID Curveball, an inside view of the 2020 Los Angeles Dodgers World Championship season. It comes out August 31st, so the day before my birthday. Uh, and we should be having Tim on to talk about that. Last thing to mention in the book club, I just want to remind everyone, the Football Outsiders Almanac 2021, the essential guide to the 2021 NFL and college football seasons. There's also fantasy football information in this beast. It's a huge, huge yearly just preview of football, and it's awesome, and it's detailed, and the, the writing is great, and the stats are good. If you're into analytics or into football at all, I recommend it. And if you want to know more about it, hang tight. Take a break. We're going to come right back with the man behind it, the editor, Aaron Schatz, is going to join us again. He does this every year. It's one of my favorite interviews every year. Uh, so let's do it. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Aaron Schatz from Football Outsiders. <laughs> Our next guest is a Brown University graduate. It's like JFK Jr. I think he's the second most handsome man to ever attend Brown just behind JFK Jr. He's the editor of the Football Outsiders Almanac. He's been coming on this show for 10 years and he's too kind to me. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Aaron Schatz. The Essential Guide to the 2021 NFL and College Football Seasons. Of course, it's the Football Outsiders Almanac 2021. And with us today, um, as I mentioned in the intro, 10 years strong, Aaron. Uh, thank you so much for being here today and for the last 10 years. Hey, good to do it. Hi, hello. Uh, I'm doing well. Life is good. Football is coming. Everybody's happy. <laughs> That's right. It's finally almost back, right? I mean, it's weird when, the, when that Super Bowl... When the Super Bowl ends and you think, okay, it's this many months away, what, seven months you think in your head or whatever. And then there's always that first time you hear how long it is and it doesn't seem far. You know, like maybe it's 100 days away and you're like, holy shit, <laughs> like how did we get here? You know, so I, I don't know. I have that feeling more than recently, I feel like this year, that it just seemed to snap back fast. I don't know. You or no? Uh, I feel, you know, it was an off season, but this off season wasn't as long. I mean... I guess last off season was weird because on one hand it seemed longer because we were going through the whole right. We pandemic. had the longest March and April ever. Right. On I mean, the other hand, yeah. football was the only sport that was doing its normal thing. True. Yep. 
draft in the same place, free agency in the same place, training camp. Right. And yeah. Yeah. So we got to go about our lives like usual. True. Very true. I think last offseason was just felt so long because of the longest March in April in the history of life, you know? So, yes. Yeah. So, but let me ask you this, I guess, as a starting question. Let's go. Let's look back at last year. So I'm just curious about this. Did COVID in any way wreak havoc on the football outsider statistics? Did anything, anything about the abnormal abnormalness of the year affect your site at all or did it was it adapted adaptable well obviously the site you know the numbers were affected by those weird games like hey this week denver doesn't have a quarterback <laughs> right against the saints um, against the saints but overall i don't think that it affected our projections by the time we got to the season itself we were able to incorporate the COVID opt-outs into our projections so our projection was for the Patriots' defense to fall apart even more than we were previously projecting to fall apart. Sure. And that is, in fact, what happened. It right. went to near the bottom of the league. So I think we accounted pretty well for the uh, opt-outs from COVID. And I think that we did a good job during the season of sort of accounting for when teams lost players due to COVID and what that would mean, you know, in our picks each week or, or whatever. So, you know, I I don't think COVID really affected what we did that much more than it affected anyone else. I mean, it affected everybody, right? Yeah, of course. Suddenly we were covering games on Wednesday afternoon. Right, right. The Bills and Titans played on a weird day. I remember Tuesday or Wednesday. There was some some unique there was some unique, unique things that we'll probably never see again in football. God willing, you know, like there was one week where there was a game every day had at least one game played. Yeah. That's wild. Uh, one thing I love about defensive adjusted value over average, which is your mother of all stats, the DVOA, is that it's not a stat you created 15 years ago and it just said this is the stat for all time, right? You adjust it. You make changes. You are always working to make it as accurate as can be. I think I'm right about that. And if I am right, what what has anything changed for this year? Is there any Is there anything since we talked last time that's new about the way you are looking at football and football games uh, to make your predictions with the statistics that you use. Nope. The big change was last year, but we changed things to count scrambles as pass plays rather than running plays. Okay. Makes it makes sense. Makes sense. Now, now do you... And that way our measure of run defense is really much more of a measure of run defense, sure. like against planned running plays, against handoffs, right? Also against quarterback runs and wide receiver runs, but uh, not against scrambles. Scrambles are counted as pass plays then. Right. So if, let's say, Taysom Hill is in for the Saints and they run that power sweep that they run, that's a run. But if Taysom right. Hill drops back, can't find, can't find, and he runs, that's – is that – a run? Uh, it, you know, some of his runs are sort of tough to figure out whether they're runs or not. Okay. But in general, uh, but you we, separate we go the with two. whatever the NFL says. If the gotcha. NFL says scramble, we go with scramble. We go, we call that a pass play. Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know what? It's probably worthwhile to do this every year. Can you give just a brief outlayer for my listeners of what DV- and I do have a lot of new ones this year because of the article. Can you say what DVOA is? This is a, a brief explanation? Sure. So here's the brief explanation. We judge every play on success based on the down and distance. So for example, a five yard run on first and 10 is a success. 
a five-yard run on third and 10 is a failure. Right. We then compare success points on each play, and you get more points for longer plays and like negative points for turnovers. It gets compared to a baseline that's based on league averages, and then it's adjusted for situation and opponent. And so overall, Genius. anything above zero is good for offense, and anything below zero is good for defense. Genius. Did you when do you remember the moment that you is this is your creation, right? Do you remember the origin of it? Like I feel like if I had someone someone from a band on and I would want to talk to them about their greatest hit, I don't think I've ever asked you this. Like, what's the origin of how this developed? Well, like would you remember going back, like how you decided to do this, how it kind of developed and became a, an actual statistic? The idea of success rate comes from the book, The Hidden Game of Football, which come out, uh, came out in the late 90s. Okay. And then I took their sort of success points system and applied it to every play in the 2002 season. And what I ended up with was Mike Allstott as the best running back in the league. And I said, that doesn't make any sense. Well, the reason why Mike Allstott came out as the best running back in the league was because he tended to carry the ball in these high-profile, high-leverage situations, right? Okay. He converted a lot of third-and-ones and fourth-and-ones and at the goal line. Yeah. So if you compared him to the average of what you would have expected from an average running back in those same situations, he had much less value. He was really doing what you would already expect a running back on average to do in those situations. So when I started to compare things to a baseline, I ended up with Priest Holmes as the most valuable running back in football, which made a lot more sense. That does make a lot more sense. And you guys have now applied this all the way back. I think last time we talked, you were at 84. So have you? is that about where you are still? Yeah, we're back to 1983. So we have 37 years of DVOA. Amazing. And how many times have you predicted the champion? Uh, not as many as you would think. A lot of times the second or third or fourth best team wins it all. Okay. But you're, you, is there a champion that really came out of nowhere? Is there one, like maybe, I don't know, New England in 2001? I don't know. Oh, the, the Giants in 2007 more than any. Okay. That's the, the Giants team that beat the undefeated Pats, right? The first of the two they played? Yeah. Okay. I believe that that is the lowest rated regular season team to win a championship. Amazing. And who's the number one team of all time? Well, from 83 on. 1991 Washington. Okay, the second team that beat the Bills in the Super Bowl. The Doug Williams-Joe Gibbs combo. No, Doug Williams is 87. 91 oh, Rippin. You're right. I'm sorry, Rippin. You're right. My bad. Because <laughs> he had the three different quarterbacks at three different Super Bowls, right? And yep. I was thinking Rippin. Or I don't know why I said Williams. Seisman yeah, in 83. Yep. Uh, Williams, Williams in 87. And Rippin in 91. 91 is the best of those three teams, and that's the best team we've ever measured. Although if you include the playoffs, it becomes very close between 91 Washington and 85 Chicago. And they're the I mean, that's probably if, if you would have had if you had, if you go on the street and ask people to guess what's the best team in the football outsiders era, I bet you get a lot of 85 Bears guesses, right? You I get mean, a lot of 85 yeah, Bears, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I love that kind of thing. Do you, do you ever just like spend some time just like Looking back on, I mean, I know you probably. I love it. I love looking at the historical stuff. It's so much fun. Yeah, I love that too. That's so cool. Like, I I would I would get lost in rabbit holes. You know what I mean? Like, just like 
Oh, the 87 Saints, the first playoff team. I wonder what they looked like. But those are probably crazy years with replacement players and things like that, right? When For 87, like, we pre- we pretend that the replacement games never happened. Didn't even happen. Smart. Yeah, really smart. We just do 12 games as if replacement games never happened. We only count 12 games worth of stats. Give me two or three teams that you can't believe didn't win the Super Bowl based on the football outsider stats, the DVOA of those teams. Let's see. The best teams that didn't win the Super Bowl. Uh, the 2010 Patriots okay. were upset by the Jets in the second round. Uh, they were phenomenal, and they finished the season really, really hot. Wait. They were phenomenal on offense, ridiculously good. So is that the 09-010 season or the 10-11 season? 2010-2011. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Another one is the 87 49ers. Okay. Uh, who, when you, they were the number one team, if you include replacement Minnesota games, but if them, you take, right? if you take out the replacement games, they were still the number one team. Okay. They are the only team to ever finish first on both offense and defense. Wow. And they got and chipped they off by Minnesota. Minnesota right? and yeah. Anthony Carter game. Yeah. Minnesota killed the NFC West, right? They beat the saints. Who were twelve and three yep. that year in the first game in the Superdome, and then they yeah they went on and beat the 49ers. Give me one more. I like this. The t- two thousand nineteen Baltimore Ravens. Okay, all right. That team was phenomenal during the regular season. Blew the league away. Titans got them right, and then lost to the Titans in the playoffs. Yep. Gotcha. Um, this might if if I'm putting you on the spot, and this isn't something you know off the top of your head. I'm sorry, but of the of the really good Drew Brees Saints teams that didn't win it. I'm thinking of the 2011 team and I'm thinking of the 2018 team, the one that got cheated. Um, what's the better of the two of those two teams? By our numbers, the best of the Brees teams that didn't win it all is 2017. Okay. So yeah, that that's, or okay. That's the one before. That one was only 11, was only right. 11. That's the one five, that lost to Minnesota a... on the Minnesota miracle team. Right. Right. 2020. Then twenty so twenty seventeen, then twenty twenty, okay, and then twenty nineteen, okay, interesting. Which so. is pretty remarkable twenty twenty because they had the games with Taysom Hill at quarterback that count in there, but their right. defense that that's the best defense sure. of the recent Saints teams is last year. I'm a little well, and that does make sense because the 2011 team gave up a lot of big plays. They were a great team, but they gave up a lot of plays. I rewatched that whole season when. Um, during the pandemic when they gave away the field pass, whatever they call it for like, remember that NFL just gave everyone a subscription for a few months. I watched yep. that season. I was like, wow, you know what? They gave up a lot of plays. Shouldn't have been surprised that, you know, well, I still, I guess I'm still surprised that Alex Smith scored on a 28 yard bootleg, but maybe I shouldn't have been. Um, so yeah, the saints have been one or two in our ratings for four straight years and they couldn't make it happen in the playoffs. Right. And, but, and, and that's, horrible and depressing for me of course they but they were cheated the one time i mean they they won that game if <laughs> i mean it's it's i mean there's no getting around that because yeah. you, you can't even say well we don't know if he made the kick because he made the kick right so we even know that it's just instead of making the kick at the buzzer he made the kick with a minute left or whatever because we got cheated so you know that's how it goes i guess i think sean payton said to the ref Right on the field, that's a legacy-changing mistake. And uh, it was. 
Because it would have been interesting to see the Rams to see the Saints against the Patriots in that Super Bowl. Certainly. Yeah, and if and if and and like to go to Peyton's point, if the Saints pull that off, not only does Breeze have two Super Bowls, but he has them against Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. But I will note that by our numbers, that 2018 team is the weakest of the last four years. Wow, I'm surprised. I'm surprised about that. Yeah, that team was fourth in offense and eighth in defense. Hmm. Okay, interesting. That's really interesting, but probably only to me. So um, <laughs> maybe you, maybe 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 you and I are both interested in that. But uh, let me let's talk about the 2021 projections a little bit. Um, and, uh, let's start in the AFC and let's start with the bills because I'm in Buffalo. So I'm going to do a favor to, to my family and my friends. And, and first let's start with Josh Allen, because I know, and this isn't a, this isn't a, an Aaron thing, because this is like an everyone thing and everyone in Buffalo too, even though a lot of them will try to deny it, that they didn't like that pick. Have you ever, like, can you remember a guy that you were as down on? based on the work you do that has achieved as much as quickly as Josh Allen has? Uh, Matt Ryan. Okay. Oh, I wouldn't have even thought that he was a guy you were down on. I would, you know, that wouldn't have even occurred to me. If you look at the bottom, like hundred prospects in our Q base projection system for the last 20 years, there's two of them who turned into really good players. You know, we usually say that even a guy who's at the bottom has like a 2% chance of becoming a really good player, and sure. that's exactly what happened. They Two cashed it in, yeah. Turned wow. into really good players. One is Matt Ryan, and the other is Josh Allen. Wow. Matt Ryan was, what, the third pick? Yeah, and of course, he was good right out the gate, like yeah. right from his first year. Yeah. Oh, believe me, I, I, I've seen the best of Matt Ryan for sure. I've also seen the worst of him, though, I think, too. You know, watching him two times a year very closely every year. And, and and honestly, the Saints, Saints, Peyton and Breeze have had a lot of success against him because two of the wins that he has against the Saints are when Peyton was not there. And that year they won both. So the Breeze and Peyton combo have done really well against them. So that's interesting. Give me a couple more names on that list. Oh, but they're busts, right? No one else. Most of the players who are in the bottom, like hundred players from yeah. the yeah, are busts. Okay. Was like was Jamarcus Russell in that on that list? Uh, I don't think he's he's that low. He's not that low. Okay. But, you know, it's like all the second and third round picks. Okay. Gotcha. And then like, Pax, like Paxton Lynch. That makes sense. Sure. You know, and and um, uh, the guy, the other guy who's that low who who um, who had an okay career is 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 Brian Greasy. Okay. Okay. Interesting. So Josh Allen cashes in a two percenter, unbelievable. Um, they they get to the AFC Championship game. Don't win it. I'm looking at the almanac here. You got twelve point two, ten point two wins, sixty seven percent chance for playoffs, thirteen percent to reach the Super Bowl, and six point seven to win it. This is based on one million um, calculations, correct? Yeah, and yeah. our simulations, like, I'm going to be really honest here. Our simulations tend to be much more conservative than the market. We have things much more grouped around, well, I guess at this point, 8.5 wins, not 8 wins. Right. So, uh, you know, if, if 10.2 sounds low for Buffalo, remember, that's fourth best in the league. Yes, yes, I was going to say that. Fourth fourth best, but third best in the AFC, because Baltimore and Kansas City are ahead of them, but barely. Um 
they're they're packed in very closely those three teams uh with new england four so let me just ask you what does your projections like about buffalo and what does it dislike i guess not much but um, well i think you can expect that the offense when the offense takes a huge improvement like it did last year we call the plexiglass principle Right When a unit or a player takes a gigantic improvement, they tend to fall back to the pack the following year. Because often a gigantic improvement doesn't just mean you improved. It means everything went right for you. Everything right season. And it, yep. Usually everything doesn't go right for yep. you two straight years. So we have their offense rebounding a little bit, regressing a little bit towards, towards the mean. Um, but we have their defense improving because their defense was better in – 2018 and 2019 than it was last year so we expect their defense to also rebound a little bit in the other direction and get better uh and then the bills come out with average special teams and one of the easiest schedules in the league okay is their running situation does that hurt them i mean they don't have a they definitely don't have a bell cow running back but josh allen makes up for some of that what what do you think is the one thing that keeps them behind and i know it's a small margin so we're splitting hairs but what is the one thing you think that keeps them behind KC and Baltimore? Well, I mean, it's different for each team, but I, I mean, for both of them, it's offense. Okay. It's just, I think the expectation of regression from the offense and it's not any player and it's not any, it's just sort of a general statistical trend. Sure. Um, you talk about coming back to the mean, well, New England and San Francisco are teams that jump out at me as ones that had poor seasons that are, higher up than I might have expected. Um, New England is is right right behind Buffalo, and um, San Francisco is the third highest NFC team. Um, so what is it about those two squads that, I mean, I think I know what the answer is for New England, um, and, and maybe I even know for San Francisco, but I'll let you tell it since I asked the question. Well, for S- New England, it's the idea of their defense the rebounding. Back, so yeah. we have a variable in the defensive projection that uh, measures talent in and out in an offseason. And in 2019, sorry, 2019 to 2020, the Patriots lost more net value on defense than any team we'd measured going back to 2003. This year, they've gained more talent on defense than any team we've measured going right. back Just to Just with the players they that opted back in, right? I mean, probably no, no, because there's only one major player who Hightower? opted back in, and that's Dante Hightower. Okay. Right? But it's also the additions of all of the players that they've added. Okay. Like Matt Judon and Jalen Mills and Harvey Lange and Devin, Devon Godshow and Kyle Van Noy. It's just a lot of talent uh, adding to the defense. They also have the easiest projected schedule in the league. Okay. AFC East and they in have general the must have. Special teams projection. Okay. AFC East in general, that must be a, a, a easy for all five, right? I mean, yes. I know. Yeah. Um, all four, all, all four teams have easier four, than average yeah. schedule. And then San Francisco, they got everyone and their brother coming back from injury, right? I mean, yep. now let me ask you: does it, does it make a difference if you play the season out with Jimmy G versus Lance? If we had Lance in as the starter, the San Francisco projection would drop a little bit. It, okay, it's tough to figure out what to do because yeah. The theoretical idea is if Lance replaces Garoppolo, it must be because he's better than Garoppolo. But the fact is you cannot predict rookie quarterbacks to be above average. Right. They just don't have a 
history of being above average. Like even first round picks for the most part are below average. So anytime you have a rookie quarterback come in, you end up predicting them below average. So yeah, if Lance was the starter instead of Garoppolo, we would drop their projection. Even though I know that for a lot of people out there, subjectively, they believe the 49ers would be better in that case. Based on history and what we've seen from rookie quarterbacks in the past, it's very hard to say that. So let me ask you a similar question with New Orleans. You have them at 9.5 wins. Does that shift either way? That is split between Winston and Hill. Okay, so you have them playing an equal amount of games? No, we have half of the projections have Hill as the starter and half of the projections have Winston. Okay, of the million. I see what you did there. Okay. That makes sense. And if you, I'm sure you did this just for fun. If you put a million for either one, does, is is it beneficial either way? Oh, yeah. Winston's the Winston better. is much better. Okay. Yeah. I think they got to go with Winston just because they can't afford to lose everything else Taysom does. They, they lost enough, you know, with all the money they had to Winston's cut. Winston's just a better quarterback. Well, the, the, the fact is, he had the 30 interception year two years ago. Right. Every other year, Jameis Winston was around the 15th or 16th best quarterback in the league. The idea that he is a below-average quarterback is just wrong. It's just wrong. Good. He's an average quarterback. He's an average starting quarterback in the NFL. And Taysom Hill is not. Right. Taysom Hill has shown Sean Payton something that he hasn't shown anyone else, apparently. I don't know what Sean Payton <laughs> right. sees in him. Because he I sees don't. something, you know. Now, I think I am very grateful for everything he brings to the team that isn't quarterback. You know what I mean? And I don't mind having him behind center for four or five plays, especially in the red zone. Those plays are often effective. But, um, yeah, I would much rather have Jameis uh, be the quarterback, you know, just as a just as a guy who's just a fan. You know what I mean? I would I think it makes more sense. Uh, Prescott's back for Dallas um, and they're right behind New Orleans. Uh, and and CeeDee Lamb, I think, is going to just be a monster this year. But. What about Dallas and um I love Dallas yeah, this year. Yeah, so do I. Dallas is my Super Bowl pick. Okay. Num- the numbers say Tampa Bay, but I'm going against the grain and picking Dallas myself. I like that pick. I do. I think that they can be a very difficult team this year. I um, think they would lose in the Super Bowl to the best from the AFC. To Baltimore. Um my so the numbers say Baltimore and Tampa Bay. Okay. My subjective personal pick is Kansas City over Dallas. Okay. All right. Hard to bet against Patrick Mahomes, even still, in my opinion. You know, I think anytime you got some money on him, it's it's safely uh, safely uh, placed out there. Let me ask you about Cleveland a little bit, because they're the one team when I looked it over, I was like, wow, I'm surprised they're at the top of the bottom half. And I, I was kind of surprised by that. What What does uh, DVOA not like about Cleveland? Yeah, it's it's interesting because they were not good last year. Okay. They were the second worst 11 and 5 team in DVOA history. Wow, who's the worst? Uh Indianapolis 2012, I believe. Okay. And uh they were 18th in DVOA despite being 11 and 5. Okay. Now, gotcha. a lot of that is wrapped up in 3 games. One of which we took out and didn't count. The opener. No, the game against the Jets where all of their wide receivers had COVID. Okay. All right. We didn't count that game when we were doing, you know, figuring things out for Cleveland. Makes sense. A lot of it is the opener against Pittsburgh and then against Baltimore 
in like week five or something. I may have those. It opposite. is. Yeah. Baltimore was the, the first game, game against Baltimore yep. and a game against Pittsburgh where they just got blown out of the building. Yep. So there's an argument that we're underrating them. Okay. But the issue is defense mostly. And even if we took those two games out of numbers from last year, when we do defense, you still end up with Cleveland 23rd ranked in defense uh, in their projection. I know that they have a lot of new defensive players, but they also lost a lot of defensive players. There's a lot of talent moving out along with the talent moving in. So they're not up there with New England and Denver when it comes to adding defensive talent this year. I'm just thinking about Cleveland. It made me think of this. Let me ask you this question. It's a good one I've seen this offseason. I want you to answer it from the way that you look at football because I think I love your mind and the way it looks at the game. If you had the first pick in an all-players draft but couldn't draft a quarterback, who would you pick? Aaron Donald. Okay, despite – I mean, I'm, I'm thinking eight, not for one year, but to, you know, play it out for forever. Uh, hmm. If play it out forever would be an interesting question because he is, you know, has been in the league for right. seven or eight years at exactly. this point. Um, you know, is there like a younger cornerback who you might go with at that point? I think I, uh, I ended up saying Miles Garrett, to, but that's why I thought of this now. You know what I mean? That was yeah, but I, Garrett's been in the league a few years too. Yeah. If you're if the whole if the idea is age, then you want to go with a player who's only been in the league one or two years. Yeah, maybe one of the Bosas. I still I probably would rather pick a cornerback because a I don't corner. think there's any edge rusher who's as dominant as Donald who's sure. younger. But you might pick Chase Young. Chase Young is a good name too. Yeah, that's an interesting name too. Or you might pick uh, Justin Jefferson. Okay. Because he had such a phenomenal yep. year at wide receiver last year. Yeah, there's a lot of good young wide receivers in this league. Let me ask. Um, let me ask you this. You can keep thinking about that one if you want to throw another name out. I'll let you. Mekai um, Becton. Okay. There's another interesting. If you want to start by building with an offensive lineman. But I, I still think I would pick uh, Aaron Donald. Okay, fair enough. Definitely a worthy pick. Wouldn't get boo. The, the if it was the Jets had the pick, the the Jets fans would not boo you out of the uh, theater for that one. Uh, it seems like in this league, there's always someone from the bot. Maybe not year specific projections, but in general, if you take the bottom ten teams in the, the consensus bottom ten teams going into this season, it seems like there's always one that either overperforms. And makes the playoffs or comes really close. Is there a team in the bottom half or bottom 10 of your projections that you look at and say, you know what, they could outplay that? And especially, I think, with the extra playoff team, we might see more of these squeak in, you know. Of our, the bottom 10 of sort of conventional projections or the bottom well, 10? Well, no, I'm asking you, so let's go with yours. I was just saying that, like, in general, like, you know, I, was I just, think the easiest story to – well, the Chargers are in our bottom 10, and everybody thinks they're going to be better than we think they're going to be. And okay. there's a reason to believe that they could put their defense suddenly together. Okay. So if you ask me about a team in our bottom 10 that could put it together, the answer is the Chargers. Okay. But I still don't think they're as good as conventional wisdom thinks they are. Gotcha. Gotcha. Really cool. I always love this too. The Jets are the team with the, the, the lowest chance of winning the Super Bowl. They're point one. How many times out of a million did the Jets win the Super Bowl? Oh, I I don't know the exact. Number. Oh, okay, you told me one year that it was like three for a team, and that, that fascinated me. Um, 
that's really interesting. But yeah, the Jets, I'd love to see what happened in that season. You know what I mean? I'd love to be able to to ask the computer a bunch of questions. Well, some of them, the Jets just stumble into being really good. But in a lot, I'm sure in some of those seasons, the Jets go like 10 and 7. They're, they're actually an average team, but right. they go like 10 and 7. Squeak and then in. they just go on a run through the playoffs. Did having a 17th game make a difference to anything? No, right? It's just oh, the AFC teams probably average more wins than the NFC teams because they have the extra home game. Okay. That makes sense. And that's just all they're just alternating that every year, right? Yep. Okay. All right. Who's a who's a team that's been rebuilding the last couple of years that you feel like is the closest to breaking through? You know, someone that's been Um Well, Minnesota had a quiet rebuilding year last year that looked like they were competitive, but actually they were rebuilding. Okay. Um of the teams that we have at the bottom, I'd say Cincinnati. Right. With the full, you know, with Burrow coming back because he looked like. He yeah. Could have been and then great. the other one is I like as a long shot bet is Jacksonville. Where with does... the idea that a lot of times college coaches get stuff out of their NFL players in the first year before they lose control of the locker rooms. All right. Where does uh, Trevor Lawrence, what, where does he rate, you know? In your, you know, like we oh, said, really Allen high, was at the he's bottom. He's still a rookie quarterback, so right. on average, you have to project that he'll be below average. But he's one of the better projected rookie. You know how we were having that discussion about Josh. Oh yeah, Josh Allen. Yeah, earlier? absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he's really high. Yeah, he's really high. Really high. Was he? Is he higher than Joe Burrow? Was I assume yes. 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 Okay. Really cool. Interesting. The um, the book that we're talking about that makes all these amazing projections is the for years now the only preseason i don't even know if magazine is the right word but it's the annual we just we call it an annual an annual book man this is way bigger than a magazine yeah it's the only one i read it's it's all that you need it's the essential guide to the 2021 nfl and college football seasons football outsiders almanac 2021 and i will suggest this the best way to buy it is to get the digital one on the website because that includes a bunch of more services that are on the website that go all year right Aaron tell me all about the ways to buy it and what you get and where to go and all that so everyone knows right you can buy a physical copy on Amazon or you can get the electronic copy by becoming an FO plus subscriber an FO plus subscriber you're going to get a ton of stuff during the season including our Kubiak preseason projections and draft tool for your fantasy draft Weekly fantasy projections during the season, uh, all kinds of interesting player research tools for fantasy, all kinds of uh, DVOA statistic database going all the way back to 1983, picks against the spread during the season, head-to-head matchup stats, uh, all kinds of stuff. So that's an FO Plus subscriber. Uh, It's like something like $60 a year. Or you can buy it monthly also. It's like nine ninety nine a month. Yeah, it's an unreal value if you break it down by week, especially it's the value got even better with an extra game too. I mean with seventeen games. So now you're dividing the total by seventeen instead of sixteen. Um and uh Aaron, I have a friend that I turned on to the Almanac. He listened to the interview, I think so this will be the third one he's heard. And he told me he's won his wins pool draft the first two years after hearing you on here and then getting the almanac. Um, awesome. So it's great for that. Um, if you got a wins pool, his I know you can't just draft any team. They group them into certain groups 
based on expectation. And you got to pick like, you got to try to pick the best bad team, you know, and um, he's used your numbers and, and stuck to them. And he's a two time champion. So I want to mention that uh, to anyone who's thinking about it. It's just an unbelievable wealth of resources. And I mean, you will spend hours just looking at, we didn't even scratch the surface here. Uh, let me get uh, who's the four playoff teams in college. I didn't ask you even a single college question, but who who oh, based on your projections? We uh, we have got. Let's see, Alabama. Okay, shocked. Clemson. Shocked. Ohio State. Shocked. And Oklahoma. Shocked. <laughs> Honestly, college is less interesting than the NFL, isn't it? <laughs> because players go in and out um, so much, you would expect there to be more change in college but there's actually much more change in the nfl because the same teams recruit at a high level every year there's actually much more consistency from year to year in college than there is in the nfl and when i was saying shocked i wasn't in any way putting down football outsiders i was saying like you know of course it's those four teams because right football college football has created a scenario where the same the same teams win every year right i mean so Unbelievable. Uh, you want to give out Twitter? Anything else you want to promote? Twitters or anything else you want to give to people to find you or to find the site or the book? Yeah, or, obviously, yeah. you know, read Football Outsiders during the season. Lots of good content. Uh, my Twitter address is fo underscore a shots. That's spelled fo underscore a s c h a t z. Or the Football Outsiders Twitter account is just fb outsiders. Aaron. I mentioned at the beginning, you've been coming on this show since the first 15 episodes, which is way back when Cam Newton had I, I, the first show I put up was the day after Cam Newton won the BCS championship with Auburn. So since then, you've, you've been coming on and being way too kind to me. And I just want to make sure that I thank you so much because I wouldn't have made it 10 years without people like Aaron. Well, thanks for having so me, man. Kind. Always yeah, thank good. You so much. Hopefully your uh, readers, hopefully your readers buy and like the almanac. Yeah, I know people get it every year, so uh, I hear from people every year saying, oh, thanks for having him on. I got it. And like I said, that guy with the wins pool, fantasy people who win win trophies and everything. So I couldn't recommend this enough. Thank you, Aaron. Cool. All right. Have a good season. Hopefully the season goes well. Thank Aaron Schatz and Lee Montville for being on the podcast today. Don't forget, you can find this episode and all episodes of the podcast on our SoundCloud page. It's soundcloud.com slash sports dash casters. You can find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email me the sportscasters at gmail.com. Also on that feed, the sportscasters feed is the 24 inch podcast. My side project with Dave Rollins and Paula Bennett at the number two, the number four, the word inch, the word podcast at two, four inch podcast on Twitter. Uh, We just did two episodes recently, one on Ravishing Rick Rude from a Boston Garden show in 1988. And before that, we did the night that Hulk shocked the wrestling world and turned bad on WCW. 
He was the third man. So check out those two episodes in our archives. Coming up in August, two two episodes dedicated to SummerSlam. One on SummerSlam 1988 and one on SummerSlam 1991. Don't forget to check out my good friend Peter Winson. Greetings from Allentown. He's on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod. That shows bi-weekly now. Every other Thursday, uh, you can find Peter doing Greetings from Allentown. But every week, you can find him and Keithy. Greetings from Allentown Live. They even did one together from vacation a few weeks ago, which I listened to and really enjoyed. And um, I was telling someone recently, like, Peter, when he does his, when he's on his game, nobody does a one-man wrestling podcast at his level. Like, he's just, he's at a different level. I wanted to give a shout-out to two friends as well um, who are kicking ass in in the philadelphia all right they do it in the philadelphia and the the podcast is called bigger than the game podcast Jeremy dove and jose ruiz connect the past to the present in the world of sports so their latest episode was on the 1996 nba draft uh they have a episode coming up about roberto clemente um they are at bigger t T game pod bigger TT game pod on Twitter to find out more information about Jeremy and Jose uh, check them out I also wanted to mention uh, the YouTube channel rush fans and it's also an Instagram page if you search rush fans on Instagram or you search rush fans on YouTube and you go to their page you'll see something called rush roots and episode 22 of Rush Roots is my Rush Roots. Um, Ryan is the main man over there. He was nice enough to have me on the show to discuss my Rush Roots. So wanted to mention that. Uh, Sportscasters episode. We got a new one coming up later this week with Jeff Passan and Stuart Mandel. Uh, also coming up in the future interviews with Michael Fabiano um, and many more emails are out and about. All right. One last thing for me today. And it wasn't too long ago. Actually, I think it was last week or four days ago uh, where I didn't know that this award existed. And not only did I know not know it existed, I didn't know what it was called, and I didn't know anything about it. Now, I told you I've been riding the soccer high uh, from, the, uh, from the big Italy win of the Euro. And I stumbled upon an article uh, that, that Giordino, who missed the, um, the penalty that would have won the Euro but made the penalty that sent Italy to the finals. Uh, his odds for this award for player of the year have went from like 20 to one before the Euro down to 10 to one. And the award uh, is called the Ballon Dior. B-A-L-L-O-N-D-O-R. Now, I'm sure there's a soccer fan who's just 
mocking my pronunciations here, and that's fair. But remember, I hadn't even heard of this before a couple days ago. Uh, but the point is, is that I found out about the ward, and I seen that one of the Italian players had a chance to win it. He's in the running. Uh, but that Lionel Messi is likely to win it and that it would be his seventh one. And that was unprecedented. So I started researching. This is what I found out. The last 13 times this award has been given out, either Messi or Ronaldo have been in the top three 11 times. There were two times that they weren't both in the top three. 2010 when Messi won, Ronaldo wasn't in the top three. In 2018, Ronaldo was second. Missy wasn't in there. Nine of the last 13 awarded. They were one and two. Macy has won six times. Ronaldo five. And the crazy part, of course, is that if the other one didn't exist, they would have 11 wins, right? So if Ronaldo didn't exist, Macy would have 11 or vice versa because they finished one and two all those times. They both have 5-6-1 in some order. So Macy is 6 first, 5 seconds, and 1 third. And Ronaldo is uh, 5 first, 6 seconds, and 1 third. The next most combined top three finishes in the award are a French player from the 80s and a German from the 70s who have five total. So let me say that again. Two players have been in the top three for this award five times. Ronaldo and Messi have both been in it 12. If Messi was a country, he would be second in wins behind Germany, the Netherlands, and Portugal, who all have seven. Now, if he wins this year, he'll be tied with any country for wins. If Ronaldo was a country, he would be tied with Italy, Brazil, and England, who have five. The first time they gave this award out was in 1957. So we give this award out every year, except for last year. They didn't. Every year since 1957. Messi, of course, is favored to win this year, although uh, Jorginho can pull off an upset. He's about 10 to 1 now, and his odds are getting better and better, although Messi's a heavy favorite at 4 to 11. Lewandowski from Poland is 6 to 1. Uh, Ronaldo has dropped from eight to one to twenty twenty to one, and Harry Kane also dropped from nine to two to twenty to one. Um, I've been reading some articles, and most of them have Macy and the Italian at one and two. Um, and I'm kind of a little disappointed that um, that he didn't make that last penalty. Maybe that moment might have helped this case. Luca Modric is the only non-Macy or Ronaldo player since 2007 to win this award. The last Italian to win it um, was Cannavaro in 2006. And that year, Cannavaro was first and Buffon was second. And many think Buffon should have won. Um, In 2007... Uh, Kaká won, and then the run of Macy, 
and Ronaldo dominance uh, began. Uh, five players have won the award twice, and three have won it three times. That's it. Barcelona is the club with the most wins. It's 12 wins for six players. Uh, Madrid, Juventus, Milan, and Bayern are the rest of the top five um, in terms of clubs that have won. Uh, Big name players. Uh, David Beckham has only one second place finish in this award. No first or third. Zidane has one of each, a first, second, and a third. Uh, Ronaldo, the British version, won it twice. Um, Roberto Baggio won it once. Uh, Ronaldinho won in 2005. A guy named Luis Suarez, who was born in 1935 in Spain, is the first Barcelona player uh, who won it. Um, So just a really fascinating award. Of course, one that I potentially don't know how to pronounce. The Ballon d'Or. And most likely when they give it out this winter, it will be won by by Macy. Messi. Macy. Messi. Messi. Macy. I like to say it both ways. Say it different every time. (laughs) You know, for a guy with a podcast... You'd think I'd be able to pronounce even one person in the world of sports' name correctly. Ford Kendrick, one of our fans, actually became a fan because I couldn't pronounce Dan Levy's name right. I would always say Levy instead of Levy. And he called me out, and I said, yeah, I'm an idiot. I screw up names, and when I screw them up, I blame my accent. So my Western New York accent makes me say Macy. But maybe it's messy. Or if it's messy, I don't know. But the point is, is that Ronaldo and, and Lionel have dominated that award like no one else ever. Ever. 